We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Okay, uh, yes, we are going to be in Psalms uh, 23 and 24 uh, tonight. Uh, Psalm 23 is probably one of the more famous psalms. Wanted to uh, kind of start off by just telling you a little bit about Psalm 23 in that uh, I have a dear, dear uh, brother in Christ that uh, uh, his mother passed away a few years ago and he was able to be uh, bedside with her as she was passing away. And as she was passing away, he was given uh, grace to be able to read Psalm 23 over and over again until she passed. Imagine being that saint, uh, hearing your son you love, being told the words from the psalm as you kind of then entered, you know, the great shepherd. Okay? So every time I read that psalm, I think of it. Now you can know it's going to go through my mind as I'm reading it myself. Okay. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Thank you for that, Drew. 
there's enough in those two psalms alone for us to chew on. We could probably end there and think on those truths, but if there's enough room left in your brain after a tiresome day, uh, let's try to learn a few more things from God's Word. And so I invite you now to turn in Ezra to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, where we'll pick up our study here as we've been here for a number of weeks now. Probably two weeks left before we finish the book of Ezra, Lord willing. We'll see what the Lord permits in the weeks ahead. But if you would, please turn to Ezra chapter 8 here this evening. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help as we look here and seek to learn from his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another new week, Lord. We often kind of think of Monday as the beginning of the week, but this really is the way in which we start our week, going to you, to your house, as it were, to worship you, to learn from your word, to be edified, to be encouraged, to be comforted, Lord, and we, uh, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. May it help us, Lord, to go about this week in a refreshed manner, renewed in our spirit, Lord, to follow after Christ and to be testimonies of Christ's work in our life. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to take a few moments just to read through the entirety of chapter 8 and then draw two main themes from this chapter that I think uh, is helpful for us and that Ezra is teaching us by recording these words for us to consider and to apply to our lives. So would you give attention now to the reading of God's word, Ezra chapter 8. Ezra records here, These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon. In the reign of King Artaxerxes, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, and registered with him were 150 males. Of the sons of Pahat Moab, Elihonai, the son of Zariahiah, and with him 200 males. And of the sons of Shechaniah, Ben Jehaziel, and with him 300 males. Of the sons of Adon, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 males. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, of the sons of Athaliah, and with him 70 males. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 males. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 males. Of the sons of Shalomite, Ben Jehoshaphat, and with him 160 males. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 males. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 males. Of the last sons of Adonikam, whose names are these, Eliphelet, Jael, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 males. Also the sons of Bigvi, Utai, and Zabud, and with them 70 males. 
Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests, and found none of the sons of Levi there. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Nathan, Jerob, El-Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leaders, also for jo- Joyarib and El-Nathan, men of understanding. And I gave them a command for Idu, the chief man at the place, Kasaphia. And I told them that they should say to Idu and his brethren, the Nethanim at the place, Kasaphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Then, by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, eighteen men, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Merir, Merari, excuse me, his brothers and their sons, twenty men. Also of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim. All of them were designated by name. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. And I separated twelve of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and the tenth, and ten of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth a thousand drachmas, and two vessels of fine polished bronze, Precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel in Jerusalem, in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Verse 31. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the way. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Meremot, the son of Uriah, the priest, and with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. With them were the Levites, Jazabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benu, with the number and weight of everything. All the weight was written down at that time. The children of those who had been carried away captive, 
who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bowls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and twelve male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people in the house of God. Thank you for listening. I know that's a lengthy passage, but I think it's helpful to understand the full context and all the events of this journey as we consider these two primary, primary truths, simply this, God is our able provider and protector. That is, God is able to provide and protect. And chapter 8 provides us more specific details about Ezra's journey back to Jerusalem, whereas, as we saw in chapter 7, Ezra only gives us kind of a synopsis of those travels, really without the details of these events. And Ezra, the scribe and priest and some of the people of Israel, we learned in chapter 7, verse 7, went up to Jerusalem in roughly 458 B.C., the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, and it was in that same year that they arrived, roughly four months later. Ezra 7.28, the end of the chapter, takes us back a few scenes to before the journey to Jerusalem, where Ezra gives thanks and explains that God's favor upon him encouraged him greatly, so much so that it caused him to gather leading men from Israel to go up to Jerusalem with him. And it's that kind of context and setting that transitions us then into chapter 8, where the events of that journey unfold. In chapter 8, God, we see, uses those leading men of Israel as agents to provide where there was lack. And as we study these key events along Ezra's journey to Jerusalem here in chapter 8, these inspired words remind us that God is able to provide and to protect. And so it's those two truths this evening that I want us to consider, both as we see in the lives of Ezra and the people of Israel, as well as how those apply to our lives today. And so we begin by simply considering this truth that God is able to provide, and we see this in a number of ways in chapter 8. Beginning by looking at the beginning of the chapter, we see this list of of the names of the heads of the families who were representative of those who returned to Jerusalem. And included in this record of returnees are men from both priestly and Davidic lines. But the majority of those who returned with Ezra were simply common Israelites, those who had, whose families before them, their descendants, had gone into captivity and had children, and it's these ones who we see returning back to Jerusalem. From the priestly line, though, we see that Phineas, in whose line Ezra was counted, was the son of Eleazar, who was Aaron's third son. So he's, he is from the, uh, the line of Aaron, the, uh, the house of Aaron, as it's sometimes said. And we also see that uh, uh, Ithamar, there was one from the house of Ithamar, or the son of Ithamar, who was Aaron's fourth son. And so we see here that there are some returning from that priestly line who had 
would, uh, you know, evidently, or, you know, we can conclude, would then return and serve as priests in the temple. We also see from this list of returnees, there are some from the Davidic line. Hattush was the great-great-grandson of Zerubbabel. Interesting to note. As well as the great-grandson of Shechaniah. And we can see that in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. You can write that down and look at it later if you find that of interest to do so. But as I said, most of those who returned were simple laity, the common Israelite, who had a desire, obviously, to return and to go with Ezra back to Jerusalem. And it's interesting that all the names found in this section of the list, that is the common Israelites, is also found in Ezra chapter 2, the list we saw there in our study of Ezra 2. However, this is a distinct list. It's not simply that it's a copy of Ezra 2. It's a distinct list, distinct from the one we see in Ezra 2, which means that those who returned with Ezra must have had relatives in Jerusalem from the first return some 80 years earlier. And now some of their descendants had it in their heart to return and to join their relatives there to worship the Lord, to reestablish the land with, or repopulate the land with Israelites and to worship in Jerusalem. And so the total number of men who returned, we find, is about roughly 1,496. You know, that's not including the names of the heads of the families, so perhaps that number's a little higher, maybe more like 1,500 or a little above. The number also does not include women and children, and we can surmise that there were women and children who returned. You know, assumedly these men were married, or at least a majority of them, and so that number is much higher than 1,500 who returned. It may have been roughly 5,000 people who returned to Jerusalem under Ezra's leadership. And so this isn't a small band of people, but at the same time, it's not a large one either, seemingly smaller than the first group of returnees under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Well, we find that having traveled about eight days from Babylon, Ezra gathered the people by the river Ahava, Now, this was probably somewhere still in the region of Babylon, somewhere uh, near the river Euphrates, probably. And Ezra used those three days, we learn, three days of encampment, to take a census of the people. And the census revealed that there were no Levites, that is, temple servants, in this convoy of people who were returning and that was of some concern to Ezra, we, we find out, we realize. There, of course, were a few priests that returned. We saw that from the list there at the beginning. But no temple servants, no great majority of Levites who could serve and do the duties of the temple. And so Ezra, full of wisdom, saw necessity in there being Levites among the group Why exactly is that? Well, he may have surmised or deduced that, well, we're returning to Jerusalem with, you know, a band of 5,000 people that may require more work in the temple. And so, you know, with us should be a number of Levites to kind of, you know, compromise or not compromise, but to help, you know, fill in the gap uh, where there may be a gap in our return to Jerusalem in the temple. 
But I think along with that, or even more importantly, is what we learn from later on in the chapter where the offerings and gifts that were coming along with them needed to be stewarded to someone for safekeeping and for safe delivery to the house of God. And so Ezra, in his wisdom, saw it necessary that there be some Levites to whom these gifts could be stewarded for safekeeping along the journey. And so uh, Ezra sees it enough, important enough to kind of take some time to figure out what we're going to do about the situation and how we can find Levites to come along on the journey. And Ezra does just this. We see that he takes, he calls leading men of Israel to go to a man named Idu, who is a leading man of this uh, area or city called Kasaphia, who is probably a Levite as well. And underneath him would be you know, other Levites who were ministers of God. And so Ezra sends these leading men, uh, assumedly the men he talks about in Ezra 7.28, to go to Idu and to request ministers for the house of God. We see this in verse 17 of chapter 8. It says in verse 17, let me read it again. It says, I, that is Ezra, gave command a command for Idu, the chief man at the place of Kasaphia. And I told them that they should say to Idu and his brethren, the Nethanim, at the place of Kasaphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. In Ezra's uh, wisdom, in his wisdom and leadership, uh, this resulted in success. There were ministers that could come along and that did end up coming along. In fact, they were able to acquire about 38 Levites along with 220 temple servants or Nethanim. We talked about this before, but let me just uh, briefly explain. Again, these Nethanim were uh, those who would assist the Levites. They were those uh, who back during the, the reign of David, he organized this kind of group of people, uh, this kind of category of people to help as servants in the temple. And so these aren't, you know, what we might say true Levites, but those who were temple servants who would assist in the duties along with the Levites. Notice, though, however, you know, that Ezra could take all the credit for this, you know, in his wisdom, you know, sending men to Idu to acquire more Levites. He could have simply, you know, taken credit for the good success. But he doesn't do this. Ezra gives credit to God for the success that they had. Look, uh, he says, uh, it was by the good hand of our God upon us that they acquired this small band of Levites with their wise leaders, Sherebiah and Hashabiah. You see that in verse 18, he says this. And so, again, we see that Ezra doesn't take, you know, any kind of credit for this, but he simply says God's favor was upon us. And by God's favor, because of God's favor, there was this provision made where there was great lack, where there was need. Well, we also know from later on that God not only provided Levites where there was a need, but God also provided offerings as well. We'll briefly look at the end of chapter 8. Look with me at uh, verse 36. 
And it says, And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people in the house of God. If you remember back to chapter 7, where King Artaxerxes' decree is recorded, there was this command that God's uh, that provisions be made to God's people and to the house of God by those uh, who were in the land, and primarily by the leaders of that land, the you know the governing officials who King Artaxerxes had put in place, as we see here in verse 36. And so again, we see God providing for His people through the provision of offerings animals, you know, gold and silver, all things needed for the house of God to, uh, to function properly. And so we see that God is Israel's able provider through the provision of Levites and the provision of offerings and gifts for the house of God. We also see, though, that God is Israel's able protector as well, and we see this in verses 21 through 23, as well as 24 to 31. Look with me at verse 21 again. Ezra records there, it says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort, of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon us, is upon all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. Notice that Ezra, while at the river with this band of people, this convoy, proclaims a fast. Proclaims a fast. In the Bible, fasting is a practice of abstaining from food and or drink for a period of time to give attention, if we can base, you know, just kind of summarize, give attention to spiritual concerns. Sometimes it was done in order to, uh, to repent, sometimes to petition of God something. Other times it was done in simple remorse. Uh, we see that uh, even... Uh, you know, we see at times uh, pagan people fasting. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, remember what the king proclaims? A fast and sackcloth out of repentance and remorse for their sin. And so often, and most often, fasting in the Old, in the Old Testament is a practice of abstaining, as we said, from food or drink to give attention to spiritual concerns and in the New Testament, we don't see fasting as emphasized as it is in the Old Testament and primarily in the, in the exilic period. We don't see quite that emphasis in the New Testament. Christians are not mandated to fast, but it's not prohibited that we do, we do that. We can, and certainly it can be a time of spiritual refreshment, a time of focus upon the things of God, prayer and supplication, especially if we use that time of prayer to commune with the Lord. You know, when we talk about fasting, specifically in, in, the, you know, in the context of Scripture, you know, this isn't just for health reasons or anything of that sort. It's to give attention to spiritual matters. And so Christians can do that, and it can, have a great, can be greatly spiritually refreshing and a time of perhaps repentance and focus upon those kinds of matters. 
Matthew 6, 16 to 18 directs us on how and how not to fast. And so perhaps you can give some time to read that later on if you're thinking about this practice of fasting and how we're to do it or not do it. But here, fasting is correlated with humility. And I think we can conclude that it is always correlated with humility. When we fast, it's for reasons of focusing upon the Lord and showing that we're dependent upon him and that we need him and need his help and his provision or his protection. And while the people of Israel and Ezra fasted, they did this. They petitioned the Lord that he might guide them and protect their children and possessions. A humble spirit recognizes one's dependence upon the Lord, and that is seen in the heart of Ezra and the people as they pray to the Lord for safety and protection in what we might call ordinary matters of life, like travel. Today, we might consider things like simply driving to the store, or as you drove to church this evening, or as you go to drive home tonight. It's no too small of matter to request of the Lord for his protection. And Ezra and the people did just this. They humbled themselves before God, fasted and prayed, asking for protection along the way. Perhaps for some, their prayer of protection is for larger matters, like Ezra and the people here who were leaving one's friends and family to travel to another country to do what they saw was the Lord's will. We see that today as well, missionaries who leave friends and family, the safety and comforts of their home, to do what they feel God is calling them to do. And if they're humble about it, they will seek the Lord's hand of protection and provision along the way. We see, though, an additional motive of Ezra to seek God's protection. And this was his concern that if they were to rely upon an escort from the king, it would undermine Ezra's expression of faith in God's watch care over those who seek him. Did you notice that in verse 22? The other reason why he proclaimed a fast and prayer for God's safety is because he did not want uh, to be ashamed uh, by the fact that he had not requested you know, an escort from the king and then they fall into some kind of trouble along the way. And now the king says, look at you know, Israel's God. He isn't, isn't even able to protect them from threats along the way. We need to understand, though, that you know, in Ezra making this statement to the king earlier on that God could protect them or would watch over them, Ezra is not being presumptuous. He really believes that God will protect them. He's not you know, just chancing it, you know, well, I hope he does, or you know, assuming something that you know, really isn't true. Ezra really did believe that God could protect those who seek him and that he would do good for them. He truly believed that God was able to protect, and that is a truth that we need to understand as well, and to have that kind of heart and expression of faith in the midst of troublesome times. As one commentator notes, in saying, I was, not ashamed, or I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers, Ezra was not bragging about his faith, 
nor was he regretting his earlier statement to the king. He, was simply, he simply was explaining that the king might have misunderstood if he had asked for a military escort. And so we must admire, admire Ezra for being consistent. Often we do not give God a chance to show his power. Remember the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My power is made perfect in weakness. And so we, like Paul and Ezra, must trust in God's protection. And that's not being presumptuous. God has shown himself to be an able protector throughout all of history as he led the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, gave him them victory over the nations of the land. And many other times when God was Israel's able protector. So in no way was Ezra being presumptuous. He simply had faith that God would watch over them. And the Lord answered that prayer. We see this uh, recorded, or this, yeah, recorded in verse uh, 23, as well as in verse 31. Look with me at verse 23. It says, So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. Also, uh, in verse 31, it says, Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us, or kept us, from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the way. Ezra, again here in verse 31, gives credit again to God. You know, there must have been ample opportunities along the way for bandits to take advantage of this convoy of men and women and children. There were certainly many costly items being transported as well, all the gold and silver, you know, just perfect opportunity for someone to come along and to cause trouble for them, to steal things from them, and to take advantage of them. Yet God, the able protector, demonstrated this by keeping them from ambush and from any kind of harm along the road. Notice that he not only protected the people, but also the possessions. They were equally important to God, and it was important to the people that these possessions made it safely to the temple. And so, in answer to their prayer, God kept both his people and their possessions safe along the road. Ezra, we see, also carefully chose the people to whom he gave responsibility of the gifts. And in reading this and this being recorded, I think it's important for us to note that, you know, this is another example how, you know, Ezra wasn't just leaving God's, you know, protection of God's people and the possessions up to chance, like, well, God, I trust you, so I'm not going to act in any kind of way, you know, I'm just going to kind of trust you but do nothing about it. And some, some people have this kind of idea wrongly so that, you know, God, you know, we don't have to use any kind of secondary means for protection. You know, we just kind of leave it all up to, to God in the sense of, you know, he's going to do something miraculous. But I don't think that's how God wants us to necessarily behave. We trust God to protect, yet we can make, you know, wise decisions and act, you know, in, 
in a prudent kind of manner to be stewards of what he's given us. And we see as we're doing this, he trusts God, yet he makes you know, wise decisions to also make sure that things get there safely and are stewarded well. And we see this in verses 24 through 30, where he stewards the silver and the gold and the articles and the offerings for the house of God to the Levites. It may seem exaggerated to have taken such precautions with the money to weigh it out carefully, to record every detail. However, to do things carefully with decisions and transactions documented in writing is a sign of wisdom on Ezra's part, not a sign of a lack of confidence in God. You know, we've already read of his confidence in God and seeking God and humbling himself before God and all the people with Ezra. So this isn't a lack of confidence, but it's a measure of wisdom in trusting God and taking careful attention to the things that have been entrusted to them. Well, as we noted already, the people arrived safely to Jerusalem, and following three days of rest from travel, the people who returned gathered to worship the Lord at the temple. The temple articles and the gold and the silver were weighed out and recorded, and the people offered burnt offerings to the Lord. For these people, it was the first time that they were able to properly worship the Lord. Just think about that for a moment. I don't know how old some of these people were. Maybe some were upwards in their 70s and 80s. Some, obviously, much younger. But for the very first time, they were able to properly worship the Lord in his temple. What a magnificent thing, a wonderful thing for them to be able to do. And I'm sure along with that temple worship was a a time of thanksgiving to the Lord for his protection, for his provision, as they offered those burnt offerings, which came not from them, but from God and from those whom God used, surely they were giving thanks to God for his provision and protection along the way. I want to take the remainder of our time now just to consider these two truths as they apply to our life. God is our able protector as well as our able provider. I think too often, you know, we, we, we caution ourselves to say, well, God, you know, I know he can protect us, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't want to be that kind of person that just, you know, simply says, God, I trust you, but takes no measure of precaution, you know. But I think too often we act uh, too reliantly upon material things and people for our protection. And too less of, of the times we trust in God. Like Ezra, we should seek the Lord humbly, seeking his protection. Requesting God's provision and protection demonstrates a spirit of humility and dependence on the Lord. Too often, as we just said, we rely on ourselves or upon things for our protection. We rely upon vaccines, upon finances, upon good government, upon a good military, upon a job. 
upon benevolence, whatever it may be, upon a working vehicle, you name it, you think of it. Too often we rely upon these things instead of saying, Lord, I trust you to provide. I trust you to protect me from my enemies. Notice, though, even in these truths that we say God is able. That does not mean that God always will protect us physically. There are times we know from history that it's God's in his wisdom and in his purpose that he allows people to suffer harm physically, even to the point of death. We see this many of the, if not all of, you know, the, the apostles of Christ suffered harm, suffered death as well for their faith in Christ. And so God is able to protect, though we must remind ourselves and remember that perhaps at times it's not always God's will or purpose that we are kept from physical harm. Yet that's not, that's not uh, to be concluded then that God isn't trustworthy or that God cannot protect. He can And we need to trust God about that. Trust that he is our able protector in times of trial, in times of harm. Trust that God's will will be done. And that if he chooses, he can protect us, no matter the kind of trial or harm that comes our way. So we must learn to rely more upon God and less upon the things of this world. Philippians 4, 6 reminds us to make our requests known to God and to often, instead of going to God first, we go to, you know, we go to someone else or we go to our own wisdom and say, how can I solve this problem on my own? Yet we should respond like Ezra where when there was a lack or a need or a request, he first went to God and looked to him for help. Ezra did not find security in people or stuff, but in the Lord. However, as we already said, that does not mean that we cannot or should not use common sense when it comes to safety. You know, you get in a car and you put on your seatbelt, one, because it's the law, but secondly, because you know that it can protect you in an accident. So we're not saying we throw common sense to the wind, but ultimately, who do we look to for protection? We look to the Lord and his ability to protect us. You know, even Nehemiah used an escort on his travels. Uh, If we were studying through Nehemiah, we could look at that, whereas Ezra did not ask for an escort. You know, was was Ezra wrong and Nehemiah right, or, you know, was Nehemiah wrong and, uh, you know, vice versa? No, I think they were both right. They both manifested a confidence in God. And they both trusted in his providential means of providing protection and provision. Nehemiah, in his wisdom, saw God providing through an escort to provide protection. Whereas Ezra trusted and had confidence in God and was concerned about the name of God, that his reputation, God's reputation, would be upholded by the fact that God would, in his greatness, provide protection along the way. So neither lacked faith in God, 
Both Ezra and Nehemiah in both instances had great faith in God and trusted God to provide in unique ways in each instance. And so as we consider God's ability to protect and provide, it's not that we're throwing common sense or prudence to the wind, but we ultimately remind ourselves that it is God who protects. And he uses these kinds of secondary means, ordinary means, to accomplish that most often. Yet, as we see throughout Scripture, at times he does it in miraculous ways, though you know, ordinarily today that's not how he operates. So as we close this evening, may we remind ourselves through this example that we see in the record here in Ezra chapter 8, that God is our able provider and protector. And that is not being presumptuous. And that is not throwing common sense to the wind. It is simply recognizing that God is our sovereign Lord who watches over his children and meets our needs where there is lack. May we trust in him this week in those ways, I pray. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now and conclude this time and study of your word, may we in confidence, in faith, like Ezra and like the people that went with him, seek you, seek your face having confidence that you are our able protector and provider. May that give our hearts great peace. And Lord, when we see those prayers answered, may we give thanks to it, acknowledge that it is you and you alone who have provided and protected ultimately. Not people, not things, but you. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.